And now it's time for Josh Talks Thrones, a podcast done by me about King's Landing and Castle Black and across the narrow sea and all the other places in this show called Josh Talks Thrones. Yeah, welcoming you in with a little bit of Reigns of Castamere. It is time for Josh Talks Thrones for Season 5, Episode 4, Sons of the Harpy. Directed by the guy who directed the last episode, Mark Mylod, and written by Dave Hill. Dave Hill. It's not a name I've seen in the Game of Thrones writer's credits thus far. Who is this Dave Hill character? I don't know, other Josh. But I do think he's directed one of the tighter Game of Thrones episodes this season. Some cool thematic stuff going on. Some nice lines of dialogue, which I'm going to highlight. Good start, Dave Hill. This was episode four. This is the last of the four episodes that HBO decided to lead with this season, and I have a feeling they decided to stop here because what better way to illustrate how far this show has gone off script than by ending with Barristan Selmy dead and Grey Worm possibly dead? What? What is happening? What is happening is like story development, which is so exciting. Because it feels like it's been, like, 15 years or so since we've gotten story development in the books. But this show is indeed marching full steam ahead. Like, this show is moving fast. I wonder if some people think it's moving too fast? I was just reading an article on Forbes today talking about how it's looking increasingly like Game of Thrones definitely ending after seven seasons which seemed impossible at first given that there were four books left to cover and only three seasons, but considering how rapidly this show has been moving, it doesn't seem shocking at all. I feel like there's honestly not much more of books four and five to show at this point. A couple things they're leading to. It looks like they're leading to Tyrion getting attacked by stone men, though I'm not sure. It looks like we're going to get Arya seeing the real secrets of the House of Black and White pretty soon. It's looking like Stannis and his army are taking off soon. But I mean soon. Like, that's not stuff they're slowly building to. That's stuff that's going to happen, like, next episode, probably. Are Marine breaking into full-blown riots? I think that's happening, like, now. And so officially we're getting to the point where characters that have yet to die in the books are just straight-up dying on the show. Like, characters who are still playing central plot roles. It's like, that is... There is like a there is this meta story going on as a Game of Thrones watcher right now where it is exciting not only to see what is happening to the characters at Westeros, it's equally exciting to see the writers figure out how to take this story to a natural logical conclusion. So far it feels very sure-handed. More sure-handed than perhaps at any point in the series and and absolutely thrilling. So maybe we should just start at the end with that Marine stuff. Because on the face of it, it's not like a lot is happening in Marine. Daenerys hearing a couple old war stories from good old Barristan Selmy, 
about her brother Rhaegar and what a lovely guy he was in contrast to the other story we heard about him earlier this episode. And then she's like, I'm going to go talk to Hesdor Zolorak about the fighting pits. I thought she'd already made up her mind on this fighting pits thing. It's not like a whole lot of progress was made on that issue. But but that's politics, you know? You're just going to discuss something over and over and over again. While chaos in the actual streets steadily gets worse and worse, which I think is the point being made here. Daenerys is trying to deal with things at the slow pace of normal government. She's trying to stay true to her principles when staying true to her principles is only aggravating the problem right now. And she's not blind to the realities of what's happening in her city, in her empire, but she's still, she's locked in her pyramid. She's far away from the strife that is happening below her. And so we get a a fairly exceptional and well-thought-out just big brawler of a fight scene, which I don't think we've seen since the beginning of last season, where uh, Arya and the Hound tore up that bar. We're showing that the Sons of the Harpy are getting more ambitious and more strategic. A little bit like the other crazy death cult we saw in this episode. See how, like, themes and stories are echoing each other in ways... Even I think even I think book readers could see coming. One ruler is fighting the crazy cult with everything they have. The other one is basically feeding the fire of the death cult while trying to reroute it into her control. And we're going to see just how well that works out for her. In any case, the only truly plot noteworthy thing about these scenes is the death of one major character and the possible death of another. Grey Worm was always kind of a nothing character in the story in the book story, but in the show story, particularly the sad, instantly doomed for reasons everybody can figure out, romance between him and Mies and Day, which still feels entirely real. It's not like castrated men can't want comfort also. Showing him as a man who was trained to be nothing but a killer, but still wasn't able to have the soul completely trained out of him. It was a really soulful performance. If he is, in fact, dead. I am holding out hope he is going to survive. Barristan Somi is for sure dead. Unquestionably dead. At least he uh, showed off his warrior skills and took out quite a few harpies on his way up. Barristan Somi, meanwhile, was always more interesting as a legend than a character. In both versions of the story, he's this ideal of the perfect warrior that everybody lives up to. And of course, eventually, every legendary perfect honorable figure on the show has to die. So it's almost surprising he hadn't already died. But he was fun as the sparring, gruff voice of authority with Jorah. Although Jorah was always the more interesting character. And the story of him deciding to change empires and sail across the narrow sea is a nice parallel to what's going on with Tyrion now. But ultimately, I'm not going to miss Barristan especially. But I do appreciate that this is the kind of character death that can really spur a plot forward and force new characters to step up. Like, what's happening with Daenerys', with Daenerys small council now? She's got Hezdar, who's one of the masters she took the city from. She already killed Mosador. And now if these two guys are out of commission and Jorah's been sent away, unless she pulls some new people up, she's basically got Dario Naharis, whose intentions are basically good, but who's not going to be a especially useful advisor to her and who she's in fact um predisposed to put too much trust in this is why we need jorah back but it's also become clear that jorah is a dark 
character at this point. He is on some dark, twisted Night of the Soul shit. It's completely clear that he essentially worships Daenerys like a god, and he is like a wreck without her. Just like Tyrion says, his plan to go back to Daenerys is probably completely doomed for him. The healthiest thing he could do is try to find a new master. He has been pardoned. He can go back to Westeros. Maybe try to carve out some life for himself there. Maybe the smarter move for him would have been to take Tyrion back to Cersei. And yet I am heartened to see that he has not abandoned Daenerys, despite all that. It's fun how this show leaves you conflicted like that. It means Jorah, at heart, is still one of the good guys. He's on our side. He's just going through a lot of personal turmoil, and he has yet to realize how diminished his own role in things is. And too blind to realize Tyrion is on his side. Not that Tyrion is making it any easier for himself. Although this is my favorite Tyrion. Like Varys says, self-pity is a bad look for him. Much more fun is to see him in a sticky situation trying to brain his way out of it. Knowing he should be charming, but just can't help himself and keeps offending people left and right. That's what endeared us to him in the first place when he figured out how to get out of the Eyrie. Now he doesn't necessarily want to get away from Jorah. Jorah is actually helping his initiative, but he probably would not want to be tied up. Ed would want to talk some sense into him. And yet he just cannot help but push his buttons. He figures out who Jorah is and everything about his plot pretty quickly. And then says exactly what he doesn't want to hear, which is the Tyrion getting pardoned. And Jorah getting executed is just as likely. There may in fact be more twists and turns before Tyrion gets to Daenerys. Maybe he'll end up in Varys' hands again. Maybe he'll get away from both of them. Maybe he'll never meet up with Daenerys in the first place. Personally, I kind of hope that this works the way Jorah wants it to, and he manages to get all the way to Marine with Tyrion as his prisoner. And then we'll see what Daenerys has to say. It's the kind of plot buildups it seems like the book has been working towards, but just gets slower and slower and more bogged down. And yet the show is rushing towards that kind of gratification, which is very gratifying, as it turns out. We've been moving backwards so far, so let's continue moving backwards and let's start talking Dorne. Jamie and Braun is fun, is fun, if at times a shade similar to Tyrion and Braun. Similar dynamics of Braun essentially being the hired gun of a Lannister who can't really defend himself, although at times can surprise themselves with how good they are with their backs against the wall. Think Tyrion killing a guy with a shield, or Jamie straight up grabbing the guy's sword with his uh, fake hand and then stabbing him in the stomach. Jamie may be fucked with a sword, but he's still cunning. And that was a fun scene, especially for the anticipation of Bronn saying, okay, can we take them? Hmm, you can barely take one, so I'd basically have to take three and a half. Uh, that doesn't sound like a good plan. Oh, but they saw us. Oh, fuck me. Whew. Well, I guess we could try to give ourselves fake names and try to get out of this situation. No. Not buying it, and you want us to put down our swords? Okay. And then it plays out like exactly how Broad thought it was going to play out. A number of nicely choreographed fight scenes in this episode. Actually, gotta give some props to, uh, to Mylod. My man, Mylod. And I also want to give props again to uh, Dave Hill for a great line of uh, when you see Braun and Jamie just kind of sitting down, eating some, uh, eating some rattlesnake before they continue on their mission. 
Bronn saying basically, well, this is heroic, isn't it? We're just two nights off to rescue a princess. It reminds you how good that's... It reminds you how good the show is at rescuing those old fantasy tropes. Because they are, indeed, technically two nights off to rescue a princess. In your classic fantasy story, that's all you would basically know to start out. We got these two knights at varying levels of valor, perhaps. But they've been tasked with rescuing this princess. So they're going to go on a trek and find her. And probably fight some obstacles in the meantime. And grab her. And take her back home. And happily ever after. Here, it might all play out like that in the broad strokes, but we've had four seasons to get to know these characters and to get to know this world and the incredible amount of detail in this world. We know that they are traveling to Dorne, a place where men only like to fight and fuck. We know that this princess is supposedly one of the knight's niece, but is actually that knight's incestuous daughter. We know that the other knight is an upjumped mercenary without honor, who's only doing this because the first knight promised him a castle and a better wife. And they're rescuing this princess from people who want bloody revenge on the crimes this knight's family has perpetrated decades ago. Knowing all that gives you so much more. And knowing all these little details about Dorne makes this place feel grounded in reality. And so far, exploring this desert environment has been fun, if very, very gradual. I can't believe this is the first time we're seeing the sand snakes. It's just for like, for one short scene, four episodes in. We've barely gotten to see Doran either. But I can play, like Doran, the slow, patient waiting game for this. I think it's all right to get little details, little details revealed one by one in this case, as Jamie and Braun get further and further into this land. But there were parts of the Jamie and Braun scene on the ship and the scenes of them eating Rattlesnake where it got a little bit of deja vu. And even during that fight scene with Jamie and Braun against the four men on horses in Dorne. A little bit of, oh, this is kind of like when Jamie and Brienne had to fight off those guys. When, this time, when it was Brienne bringing Jamie to King's Landing. Different sort of quest. Only there, Jamie was the wisecracking one and Brienne was the serious one. And here, Jamie's all serious. And Braun's just like, I don't really want to be here. So for those reasons, I'm not hugely thrilled by this pairing yet. I'm more excited about getting to see the world of Dorne. Although, what we've seen of the Sand Snakes so far hasn't been much, honestly. They're scheming to kill a little girl. First of all, that immediately makes it hard to get on their side. Whether they're Oberyn's illegitimate daughters or not. And then, ooh, one of them can throw a spear. At a guy she tortured in a cool way. Except they cut and you couldn't even... It didn't even look remotely like she threw that spear. I will be honest. It's clearly like she starts to throw the spear and then quick cut to the spear just like in the guy's head and didn't, sorry, didn't buy it. So far I like Ilariad, I like Doran, and I like what they are doing. But Sand Snakes, you gotta show me a little more than that. Okay, let's talk about our quick stop in Winterfell. And I'm sure I'm not the only one to have this reaction, but this is really starting to give me chills. We are used to Littlefinger being the man who sees further ahead, more steps ahead on the chessboard than anybody else in this game. He's always the one with a master plan. And it's rare, it's very rare that he doesn't take into account some factor or miss a step. It was one reason it was so surprising when, after Peter killed Lysa last season, and the Lords of the Vale started questioning him, he didn't know what to say for a second once uh, they brought Sansa in. 
you can seriously see on his face like, oh shit, I'm screwed. Sansa basically had to step in and save his ass. So we know he's a schemer and he's good. He's very, very good. But he is not infallible. And so here we get Littlefinger and Sansa. And so here we get Littlefinger telling Sansa his master plan, finally. And of course, we knew there was more to it than Littlefinger just burying Sansa off to the Boltons. He is doing that, but it's because he's waiting for another factor who he knows is on his way to come in and clean up his mess. He knows Stannis Baratheon is on his way to Winterfell. How does he know that? I know. I know. I know. So that could have two meanings. Either he's just that good at playing this game that he knows that's where Stannis has got to be heading. Because he knows Stannis is a rational man and that's the only rational play. Or he's got spies up by the wall telling him what's going on. Either way, he's right, of course, because he's a little finger. And I would wager, based on Stannis' interest in these Stark names so far... That he's also right, then when, when Stannis makes it to Winterfell, when and if he manages to defeat the Boltons and free Sansa, he may indeed make her wardeness of the North. That sounds very plausible, bordering on likely to me. So great, Littlefinger's engineered an excellent plan once again. And this time it happens to benefit our girl Sansa. Except before that can all happen, Littlefinger's got to go back to King's Landing for a bit. Sorry, Cersei called him back. For real, he's going to leave her in the worst place imaginable for her. And she's understandably freaked out, and he says, Well, look, you just got to learn to manipulate dangerous men. You've learned from the best, right? I totally love you and stuff. This will be all over soon. Do I think he kind of loves her? Sure. Do I also think never trust Littlefinger? Of course. In this case, I'm not necessarily distrusting his motives or thinking he's got some other sort of double secret play up his sleeve. It's more a case of don't trust that this guy who's just all calm on the surface and telling you everything's going to be fine. I got to go back to King's Landing, but don't worry, you got this. Actually has any idea what he's talking about because he's persistently ignoring or just completely has no idea what Ramsay Bolton actually is. And I keep hearing, I keep hearing from like Ewan Rian and Sophie Turner saying that Sansa's going to have a like really disturbing scene coming up soon. Not divulging details, but I got to imagine that it's as soon as Ramsay is alone in a room with Sansa, God, I mean, I don't, I don't want to go there. I really don't want to sit through that. I mean, it was bad enough when they decided to like give special focus to Craster's Keep last year and just have like whole scenes with women getting raped in the background. I know this show is really into depicting violence against women in some pretty awful ways. Or sometimes violence against gay men like we saw in this episode. And violence in general, I guess. But I do not want to see Sansa get abused, tortured, raped, and brainwashed by Ramsay Bolton. I really just... If Sansa actually does, like Littlefinger keeps telling her to do, turn the tables on him somehow, I can't imagine how. Great. I guess that's cathartic. If this is a huge miscalculation and Sansa just winds up in an even worse situation than she was in with Joffrey. 
like just it would undo all this great work that they're doing tying these storylines together in Winterfell to just make it another excuse for torturing these pure virginal women in the name of some catharsis down the line or historical accuracy or whatever your justification is. It is those moments where it becomes hardest to be a Game of Thrones fan. And this is all speculation, and it's possible the show's not going to go there. I'm just, I'm hoping. At the Wall, which is another storyline that's been hugely improved from last year. It is a lot of fun having Stannis and Melisandre and this army and everybody up at the Wall. Just like Shireen says, I'm actually having a good time. Not a lot of huge developments this week, but we're pushing towards some interesting stuff. For instance, the way that this show keeps hinting and hinting that Jon is going to end up joining Stannis' side. Like this episode, they made it clear that if he's going to serve as Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, he has to ask Roose Bolton for help instead of fighting Roose Bolton. We are getting to a point where a man of honor like Jon might have as much as he can take with this stuff. Stannis has done a little bit of work on him by becoming a strange sort of father figure to him. Davos has been doing a little bit of crafty work on him. Sam isn't necessarily dissuading him. And then Melisandre decides to make a hard push this week. Melisandre, one of the two big religious figures focused on this episode, as suddenly religious wackos took a forefront. She is the nonviolent kind of religious wacko, but she still has a way of getting what she wants. And when she tells John that she's going to show him the truth with no tricks, no magic, just life. First of all, I'm not sure if that's canonically accurate. If she is indeed glamoring herself, which I still think is possible. And maybe even like being ironically hinted at in that moment. Second, you realize that this is John's weakness, right? John Stark, always been depicted as a man of honor, always the guy who basically does what's right and is fully committed to the cause. But women have been a weakness. Just like it was apparently his father's one weakness. If you believe R plus L equals J, at least. Or even if you don't believe that, just knowing that John Stark's origin is a product of love over honor. And John will sometimes pick love over honor. And Melisandre is coming along at a right moment for the rebound. Or almost right, as it's clear John is not quite over her yet. But she's also a redhead. We know John loves redheads. I don't think they ever actually 100% went there in the books. They might have been hinting towards it. But I would not be surprised if that actually starts happening here. In fact, I really would not be surprised if Melisandre stays behind a castle black. While Stannis and Davos go off to Winterfell. It even feels like there was hinted a little bit in that conversation between Melisandre and Stannis, where they're saying all the right things about how committed they are to each other, but there's a little bit of tension there. And that Stannis might be thinking about doing his own thing, and Melisandre might be thinking about doing her own thing. And maybe it's time for a little bit of conscious uncoupling, and conscious recoupling with Jon Snow. I don't think John is ready today. I think he may be, I think he may well be ready soon. And when are we going to see the wildlings again? 
That's one of those things I feel like they can't just keep putting off forever. Jon Snow's under a lot of stress right now. He thinks he's got control of what's going on, but he's starting to realize just how much he doesn't know. Guys, some of you might think it was cheesy, but Melisandre dropping you-know-nothing Jon Snow and then giving him that smile and walking him away. What a mic drop moment. Holy shit. Way to both get in a dig at the guy who just rejected her in her hotness and also give him just a little glimpse of how powerful her own magic is. And then she walks away. Damn, Melisandre. As always, I have no idea what she's thinking or what her endgame is, but it's nice to have a few characters in mystery like that on this show, and she regularly kills it. Also killing it in, like, the most touching moment of the season so far, little Shireen Baratheon is having a good time here and gets to spend some time with her daddy, who she never sees. And finally, she has a moment, and she gets out this question, Daddy, are you ashamed of me? And Stannis, this guy who never smiles and never sheds a tear, is nonetheless, like, demonstrably thrown and gets up and starts telling a story about how important her own safety was to him and how at one point he would do anything for her and how she belongs with him because she's the princess of Dragonstone. And he, like, looks her right in the eye when he says that and the degree to which he means it is so clear. Stephen Delane in those moments can, like, just takes a character who can be so impenetrable on purpose and makes him so transparent. It's really, like, shockingly good work. But the real killer button there is the way that as he's telling this story, like, Shireen just gets this big, goofy smile. And then when he's done, runs up and gives him a big bear hug. She's one of the few characters in this world capable of that kind of joy. And to see it is almost jarring, but it's so sweet. And I have no doubt that that scene was mostly there to just... A, give us what might end up being a final moment between him and Shireen, at least for some time. And also to keep us aware that grayscale is a thing, and hearing about the stone men of Valyria again. Because I think grayscale is going to end up playing a major role this season somehow. Still, brilliantly pulled off. God, what a good show this is, guys. How privileged we are to watch it. I say it like every week. And so let's end this episode with a little talk of King's Landing. And my favorite thing about these scenes is how, from the beginning of the plot, every scene just followed from the next, like, dominoes. Boom, 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 boom. It's a style we very rarely see this show work in. We will often see, like, a series of scenes that take place around the same time with slightly different character pairings in the same location, and then we zip to a new location. But here it was just following one event after another after another, and the forward momentum was palpable. First, Mace Tyrell gets sent away to buy a little bit of time with the Iron Bank. It's not going to accomplish much, but Cersei knows that her real desire is just to get Mace Tyrell out of the capital, forcibly, accompanied by a Kingsguard. At first I'm watching that and that seemed like overkill. He seemed more than happy to just get out of the city anyways and take on this very, very honorable mission. Later it becomes clear that this is just part one of a Cersei power play. First you send the Tyrell Patriarch away. And then before Marjorie can even realize it, you snatch up the Tyrell brother and isolate Marjorie even further while making your small council just a little bit smaller. Though not small enough, Grandmaster Pycelle. 
At first, it seemed like just a paranoid move from Cersei, but then as the later Tyrell machinations become clearer, she's got a, she's got a master plan she's enacting. But first, she's got to sit down with the High Sparrow and get herself an army. The Faith Militant. It seems like they really amplified how scary these guys are for the show. I ought to check and I ought to double check that, but if that is true, it completely works. It's perfect. Because the Sparrow stuff could have seemed dull on screen, but these guys are not dull. They're carving seven-pointed stars into their forehead and whipping and torturing people and dragging them through the streets. Like, it's psychotic. And even crazier is that the High Sparrow doesn't seem like the kind of guy who'd go for that stuff at all. He just seems like he's all humility and all reasonableness and a very holy man. And in every conversation of Cersei, he just seems totally honest, like... I never wanted this job. I just do what the Lord tells me to, all right? And yet he always seems confident. And ultimately, the things that Cersei tells him to do, he he gets it done without hesitation. Scary and formidable, while also seeming normal and nice. It seems impossible to pull off, but Jonathan Price is goddamn. My favorite addition to the cast so far this season. He is absolutely nailing every scene he's in. So Cersei has now bought herself a crazy cult and become just that much more terrifying, while never seeming any less paranoid or ruthless. And then this gives me an excuse to highlight another favorite performance of mine this season, um, Natalie Dormer as Marjorie Tyrell, who's both just, who also embodies this sort of very necessary contradiction. Because yes, she's manipulative. She is an expert manipulator. And yes, she's ambitious. Everyone in her family is ambitious. But she is also not evil. She feels real emotions and love for her family and often has moments where it seems clear she's trying to do something altruistic for ends that, yeah, do end up making her look good, but don't actually seem to have some sort of like evil counterpurpose. And she's not always lying. My point, I, she's a real person. Sometimes very good at keeping the act up. Sometimes letting it slip. And when she confronts Tommen, I think it's clear she's really hurt and afraid and angry, as she should be, because Cersei is, looks like she's trying to destroy her family. And showing, I think, real frustration with Tommen for the first time. As somebody who's sweet and nice and lovely and a little simple and very non-threatening. And when push comes to shove and the chips are down, is not going to confront his mom that hard and can't pull crazy political maneuvers to get the job done. Still better than Joffrey, but not all that helpful in this situation. So Marjorie's not going to sleep over anymore. She's got to go be with her grandma. Sorry, Tommen. It's that, again, perfect mix of real and manipulative. She probably is too angry and upset to stay with him right now, and she probably does need to be with her grandma, who can advise her on how to get out of this situation. But she is also pleading with him to be a man and begging him to send away his mom, and begging him to take charge. And when he can't do that because it turns out he can't solve the problem without violence, which he doesn't want to do, she denies him sex. Something tells me that's going to give Tommen a bit more of a kick in the pants to get her will done. Even as his mom is seriously screwing with him, and basically undermining him while saying, you're the king, I'm sure if you could talk to the High Sparrow, and then finding out, no, under... Cersei's orders, he can't talk to the High Sparrow. 
and things are reaching a boiling point fast, fast and already in King's Landing. It's season, it's episode, it's episode four, guys. And the tension in a few areas of the show have already gotten like out of control. Not too much in the way of like crazy things have happened yet, but this is all clearly building to something. Things are converging in interesting ways. Characters are dying who we haven't seen die yet. Things are getting desperate. And they're going to boil over. And oh my god, episode five. Hi. Oh my god. I can't wait. I cannot wait. And I officially no longer have screener episodes, so I'm stuck watching it on Sunday night with everybody else, and then I'm going to have to rush to get this up. It may take some time. I don't know. Things in my new job are busy, too. But for now, I'm giving these first four episodes of season four a straight up A. Great acting and incredible thrilling storytelling, and anybody who was calling that this show had jumped the shark was so premature, and I'm so happy to report that. Until next time, guys, follow me at Radio TFB on Twitter. Until next time, Valar Morghulis.